Hello and welcome back to OT and Chill, all things occupational therapy with me, Kwaku. On today's show, we continue with the autism series. On the episode today, I speak to Emma Curran and Hannah Hayward. Emma is a 3D artist and also an autistic woman. She was diagnosed at the age of 18 while she was at university. She originally trained as a 3D character animator and worked on some amazing VFX films including Jungle Book in 2016, Exodus, Gods and Kings and Guardians of the Galaxy. Then became a freelancer animator and illustrator for a change. She sometimes participates in autism studies at the King's College London and once a year does a talk to students studying the MSc Clinical Neurodevelopmental Sciences about her experience living with autism. Hannah has had a career spanning over a decade. Her extensive work in autism covers research, diagnosis, mentoring, care, training and education. She is highly experienced in delivering gold standard diagnosis of adolescents, adults and children and sees patients and their families both privately and through her ongoing work with Primary Care Trust. She is currently in the final stages of completing a PhD at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience at King's College London on how we can better understand sex differences and similarities in the autism profile. Since 2012, Hannah has been delivering autism psychoeducational workshops with male and female offenders across London prisons. Having been part of a successful bid for government funding in early 2018, she is now partnering with St Giles Trust to improve service provision for women with mental health and complex support needs in England's criminal justice system. Hannah has dedicated herself to autism research and tirelessly advocates for increased public understanding of women on the spectrum and indeed the greater well-being of all those with a neurodiverse condition. I'm so fortunate to be joined by these two ladies and I really, really enjoyed the conversation and I hope you do too. So let's get right into it. Hello, so I'm very lucky to be joined by two uh, wonderful women um, today to talk about autism and females. So uh, we've got two two of you, Emma and Hannah. Emma, would you like to just give us a, a very brief introduction of yourself? I was diagnosed with autism over 10 years ago now. Uh, at the moment, I am a 3D artist on leave, uh, maternity leave. So yeah. Oh, great. Hannah? My name's Hannah and I am currently finishing my PhD on sex differences in autism and also work in diagnosis in the criminal justice system and in the community as well. Oh, wonderful. So we're going to get very good perspectives <laughs> from, from, from you two today about the um, um, personal experience on Emma's part and, and obviously the work that you're doing, Hannah, in, in both the community and the criminal justice system. So that's fantastic. So one of the first questions I wanted to ask you, Hannah, is uh, talking about the prevalence of autism uh, in the community, all the places that you work, especially in women. What, what is there any statistics around that? And also if when you do give some statistics, what, what are some of the reasons, core main reasons behind that? Yeah, it's a really good question because actually the statistics have changed in the last few years. I think if you, when I started in the field kind of 18 years ago, which makes me feel very old, um, <laughs> I think we were looking at around 16 to 1 for females diagnosed to males. Wow. Um, and that's now in research, they're saying around 4 to 1, 3 to 1. But I would say clinically, I'd say it's more like 2.5 to 1 that we're actually recognising and picking up because now that's taking into account the women that are being recognised later in life and into adulthood. And those previous statistics were based on children and younger okay. people. And that usually was influenced by having an intellectual disability or a learning disability, as it was called then. So it's changed because, and maybe Emma would be able to add a little more, but from my understanding it's because the way that we characterize and understood autism for the last 60 70 years was based i hate to say it but quite on a male bias a male bias in the medical model and also a male bias in how we view autism what we all think about when we think about autism 
I still think is quite stereotyped to what we've seen in um, the media, what we've seen in films. You know, Rain Man was a great film, but it did quite a lot to kind of make everyone think of a certain way about autism. And actually, from my experience, it's not it's not like that, really. It's very, very different. And particularly, I think what we can what we'll talk about today is that females that I've worked with, and this doesn't apply to all females and also I should add that this can apply to some males as well yeah. is that they will present in a way that we don't expect them to present and they'll present in a different way and they'll have different difficulties and quite often these difficulties will be internalized so they might not what is seen with the, the eye what not what we observe in front of us and therefore makes it more complex to pick up and diagnose mm. Uh, Emma, in your experience, because you I guess you said you were diagnosed 10 years ago, uh, yeah. at, at the time, did you see loads more women around you that did have that diagnosis or, no. or were you just like sort of by yourself type of I, thing? I was completely on my own. I didn't know any other women that had a diagnosis. Since then, my mum has got a diagnosis. And one of the reasons why I think some of the doctors were in, interested in me was the fact that I had three brothers who also have problems, OCD, that go along with autism and they were quite interested in a family of three boys. Mm. Um, and I was kind of incidental. That was very much the feeling I got when I got my diagnosis. So is it, I just want to ask, so that's very interesting actually. So, so you had three brothers, uh, yeah. and they were all growing up, had some difficulties. Yeah, yeah, we've all got some difficulties. One of them had very severe OCD, um, but we we are all somewhere on the spectrum. We've since my diagnosis, we've discussed it, and over the past past few years, yeah, it's very clear we're all somewhere on the spectrum. And yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> we're a weird family. Yeah, no, you know, weird family. I was just thinking because if you're growing up in the boys or had some difficulties i'm just very surprised as it, it wasn't even picked up much earlier like are you what 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 um where are you in your in in the uh siblings uh where you I'm, I'm the eldest oh you are okay yes and for instance with my brother's ocd he didn't start developing until he was 12 or he didn't become a problem until he was 12. so it was kind of once that became an issue then not that we weren't important but there were bigger issues for my parents to worry about so yeah, it's and 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 I think my parents thought I was doing okay at school. I was managing, so it was just a kind of she's getting on okay. We'll deal with the this. Yeah, and I think that's pretty normal. Yeah, that's that. And that that's that's fair enough. Um, I was have one of our podcasts. Um, previous episodes I was talking to uh, uh, Lydia Guffrey about attachment styles and we talked about sib the, uh, where siblings are placed in the family so yes. when, when someone's born it, the family changes because yes. when you're when you're born it was only you three maybe and then your brother comes along and another brother it just mm -hmm. changes the whole dynamic so actually the, probably the, what happens is that the youngest let's just say that's just something some sort of youngest tends to get the most attention because they're the, the ones are the most danger of <laughs> yeah, yeah. around the house <laughs> so that's completely understandable and I can relate yeah. to that as well in my family <laughs> when the youngest <laughs> cries it's, he's the one that um, worries most but actually everyone matters in the family uh, so Hannah I want to pick you up on when you talked about the, uh, the the male bias I think that's a very important point because I think historically uh, with all diagnosis we have to be honest with everything in the medical field this has been dominated by male influence how is it now in terms of clinical work is it still quite prevalent in terms of male male bias in in the diagnosis of autism so yeah okay so there's two strands to that really i suppose there is still there continues to be the male bias in the med medical model that we apply to clinical diagnosis because if you go to the tick box criteria of how we have how we diagnose males and females boys and girls it's still based on the evidence and research done years and years ago because it takes a long time for criteria to change but the thing is is that what we're our understanding anecdotally and clinically is changing so we're having to fit a lot of people through this historical framework as it were so the good thing about the historical framework is it has picked up a lot of people over the years. But what I'm finding in the work I do is a lot of the women and a lot of the girls I see might fly just under the radar. So they might fly just under the threshold that you need in order to meet 
the criteria for autism. And I think when Emma spoke to you, you know, before she made it very clear and she said really well that you have to have continued I don't like the word because it's kind of negative, but we call it impairment in terms of clinical terms. It has to be daily impairment or kind of long-term impairment. And that's the criteria that you have to meet in order to get a diagnosis. But a lot of the work I'm trying to do now and starting to do is actually with girls and females that might not quite meet the threshold, but actually still need a lot of support and they need they, they deserve a lot of support. So that's where the dichotomy comes because if you go to some clinics in some areas they'll say if you don't tick that box if you don't meet the criteria you're not getting a diagnosis and therefore you're not getting any help but i think what you know some of us are trying to do in the field is recognize that there's actually this other group of very clinically relevant young people and um, older females that kind of deserve and require support and some kind of you know, for some people, diagnosis isn't that important. The label isn't that important. But the fact is, is that they have difficulties and things that they need support with. Emma, would you um, agree with that? Yeah, definitely. And I was going to say, for, I mean, like for my mum, for instance, and for me, just the having, being recognised that there is an issue. You might not need the help, you might not want the help, but just being recognised that you do have an issue, that can be so helpful because then you're not, then you have a reason why you don't fit in. You, you're not having to, it's not the fact that you don't, you're not making the effort to fit in. Mm. It's it's not your fault. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I completely understand. I think when you were talking, I was thinking about how, you know, when we think about the world and how the world is like, you know, the world mm -hmm. is designed the world is designed probably by yeah. men <laughs> designed by men is designed for the perfect person in a lot of places you know you know the, the, uh, i know it's changing a lot of things are changing but in general uh, things are designed for the perfect person so if you don't fit in that then you're going to have difficulties but actually yeah. at the same time you need to be able to live your life so you <laughs> and so what happens is that you have those difficulties and those battles with yourself um trying mm -hmm. to fit in all the time and that's because that's really really difficult so actually yeah. thinking about how to support the people just under the radar just mm -hmm. because they don't have a diagnosis or a label is actually really really important yeah. i think just to add sorry is that the world is designed by neurotypical men I think so if you think about the women that we're talking about and the girls we talk about it's like completely the opposite in some ways the nuances and the subtleties that the a lot of the women and the girls I've worked with uh, are dealing with are so alien I think to some of the ways that things are designed even down to sort of our expectations mm -hmm. yeah yeah, no, that's very true. Uh, so let's move on to talking about some of the, uh, you know, the differences in uh, presentations. I know you mentioned it a bit earlier, um, Anna, about how uh, girls uh, might present completely different. And Emma, you, you could probably tell us more about about how you you differ from some people that you know. Um, yeah. So what's what's some of the main things that someone like me <laughs> would actually consciously have to see? to know that someone may have I know everyone every single person with autism is completely different I completely understand that as well but what are some of the main things that I would have to I would see and think oh actually yeah this this might be an issue for this person or might not be an issue for this person between males and females I think well I'm Emma might completely disagree with me and that's fine and I would want her to by the way but um I think the things I've seen over the years um I think the thing that we're talking most about in the field at the moment I think you had Ben on didn't you the other week about camouflaging yes. yes and he did a great great um piece he talks really clearly about camouflaging so which is actually important for me to note that it does happen in men as well because I've been told off when I've given talks that autistic men have come up to me and said actually I camouflage and I mask so I think the, the kind of key things I've seen is as I mentioned at the beginning about internalizing so I think that's a massive part of it and that can cover a whole host of things so that can be internalizing feelings of anxiety about going into a situation whereas I think to put it quite plainly I think boys younger boys or men might externalize what we call externalize so they might show it physically or they might show it verbally or they might have um, behaviors that we can physically see that they're suffering or they're struggling. And I think a lot of the girls I've worked, I work with and a lot of the older women, it might be shown privately or it might be shown internally. So therefore it can come out in 
quite very, very severe anxiety and low mood, but also um, to when it gets kind of very difficult, they might self-harm, get to levels of self-harm, or they might control their eating patterns, or they might try and control environments around them that not everyone can see. So they might, I know a lot of women I've worked with will learn what we call scripts, or kind of learn and watch other people of how they respond to things. So I recently diagnosed a woman in her 60s who's worked as a script writer her whole life. And the way that she managed it was to record TV programs, record films, record her family and how they responded emotionally in situations. And then she took that on herself and she it was like a learnt role. And I actually, I actually saw a girl last night who was only recently diagnosed, she's 15. And she said to me, because you're constantly watching other people for how they respond, you never get a chance to develop your own identity. So you can see how complicated it can become. Um, if you're constantly watching other people, it's exhausting for a start. So I've had, and I'm sure Emma can add a lot more, um, a, a kind of more clear information, but I think a lot of women I've worked with and girls have said that they'll go to a party, they'll go to work, but they have to go and rest for a day or a whole night because the whole experience of having to constantly watch what you're doing think about what you're doing, predict what you're doing, and then act. It's an act quite a lot for a lot of the people. So then, you know, they'll, the thing is, the reason that they fly under the radar is because other people say, well, they went, they go to parties, they have friends, they go to work, they can't be autistic, but they've had to kind of learn so hard to, in order to do that. Mm. It has an impact internally and privately, I think. Well, well, well yes, that's, that's, uh, it's similar to what Ben was talking about. And I was, when I was listening to Ben, I was thinking that is, that's really, really, really hard work. That's a lot of things to uh, manage your um, your daily life, just yeah. being being who you are. Uh, yeah. And then this on top of that as well. And when you were talking um, as well, like, um, um, uh, Hannah, you were talking about how they might internalise this and that might come out in self-harm or not, like uh, uh, issues with eating. That's like another secondary difficulties that you might experience so it's it's, it's really really quite tough for people to manage all those things uh in, in their mind on top of actually feeling like they're different <laughs> to everyone else around them uh, would you uh, agree emma with some of the things that hannah was saying or disagree yes. <laughs> no i'd agree entirely um okay well, uh, with how boys present differently i my brothers would react physically when they had an issue so they got noticed a lot at school. Um, so, so by the time my youngest brother was coming up through school, they, they knew he was one of the current boys. Whereas most of my teachers were completely unaware they had a they had a sister at the same school. So yeah, girls really do. I think just they're so much quieter about it. But I but internalizing it. Um, when I used to work in London, when I was an animator. They're having to function all day to to deal with people. Uh, it got to the point where I couldn't do anything. When I got home from work, I'd have to just sit quietly and I couldn't even talk to my husband. I could barely function. And I'd need to do that for longer and longer periods. It got to the point where we weren't going out, weren't doing anything, weren't having conversations, just because I was so stressed from the having to function with people all day, every day. And I get it's quite a stressful job, but it's, is miserable existence and it yeah it gets to the point where you really do need help i think because that's that's not living that's that's just working so you can put food in your mouth and yeah it's miserable life that's really that's weird. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to work out in my mind because I'm thinking. I'm trying to relate it back to some of the things as occupational therapists we talk about um, to try help people having difficulties and actually the balance of your occupations, as we call it. If you're mm -hmm. working all the time and you're given everything at work, and then you get home, actually you can't enjoy the company that you have at home and your husband, and you're 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 not going out doing actually other things that you enjoy, you know. Yeah. Work is being very productive because you know it's it's you're working, you enjoy it. It's giving you uh, finances, but actually, if you're not able to enjoy the finances, there's, there's that balance is gonna. Um, and you, I think you've just put it uh, really well. And you said you felt 
miserable and that's a and that's no feeling that that's I don't feel like that's a place that anyone wants to be so in your in your situation how did you overcome that how did you then uh, know that you you needed the assistance and, and then to switch job. around okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah okay. It, it yeah it was kind of forced I was forced into the situation and and after I lost my job and I couldn't find another one that there weren't many films coming through at that time um yeah just just that break where I was at home I didn't the only person I had to sort of function with was my husband was it was a relief it was so lovely to sort of wake up again and realize that I hadn't actually probably been outside in over a year I hadn't done something gone out just the enjoyment on it of it for over a year and that was a big eye-opener and mm. yeah Oh, that's 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 really in obviously in the negative way you lost the job and that's that's not mm. that's not great but actually having the time to find yourself sort of again and enjoy the yes. things that you actually really enjoy that's that's really powerful and i and i hope mm. that people listening um you know can use that and help people to find that balance you know when you mm. really feel like you're struggling actually what can what gives first and what can you then like maybe speak to your employers about or people close to you about and then try I don't know get the assistance that you need but that's that's very that's very powerful so thinking about society we've talked a lot about it already and thinking about work do you think there's more pressure on women in general autistic girls autistic women to be- behave differently in society in different environments than male counterparts like you and in, in your I know you talked about you, your parents maybe having more worries with your brothers did mm-hmm. you did you feel the pressure to behave in a, in a different way compared to your your brothers or in school yeah yeah I, I, I think that's a pressure on women in general I don't think that's just yeah. for autistic women but I think there is a pressure on girls to behave well to be nice to accept what other people decide and yeah and I think if, if when you're autistic and you're learning, you're learning about the world and your function within it, and and I think you, when you're learning how to function, it you you watch other people, like Hannah said before, and I mean that's something my parents, my grandma, really helpful with, show me how like to get on a bus, that sort of thing, mm. how to talk to the bus driver. Um, but I do think you learn a script and you learn how to behave, and it's very set and defined, and basically you have learned to behave nicely. Yeah, that's uh, that is a lot of pressure. In, in, in your experience so far, Hannah, uh, uh, is that what is that what you found in your clinical work, or uh, when you when you've talked to different families? Yeah, it's really interesting. Like, I don't want to make this a feminist rant no, or anything, but I do think that women and girls, there's a lot of expectation on them on them to behave a certain way. But equally, I think, I think Emma picked up on it before beautifully. Is that you know. They didn't know at school there was a sister. I think, you know, the focus was on the boys. And it made me think actually that something we didn't talk about before with the presentation is a lot, there's a whole thing in obviously a whole aspect of autism is special interests or repressive yeah. interests. And that's one of the major factors actually in what is, I think has stopped some girls being picked up. Because when we do an assessment, we ask what the special interests are. We ask the nature of them, the quality of them. And quite often, if you want to think about the stereotypical boy, it will be the trains, planes, engines, radiators, light switches, all those things that kind of anyone could enjoy, but to the extent they enjoyed them is beyond what is typical. The thing with a lot of the girls I've worked with are females is that their interest might on the outside seem acceptable to parents. So you'll say to the mum or dad, you know, does she, um, what does she play with? What does she enjoy doing? And they'll say, well, she loves her dolls or she loves One Direction or she loves, you know, but actually, and therefore they kind of don't give any attention to what's going on when she's playing or when she's interested. And they might not understand that the nature of it, or they might not have taken enough time to notice because they're so kind of relieved that she's playing with dolls and that's typical and that's what she should be doing. They're not, they're not seeing that she's actually repetitively brushing their hair so much that it falls out, or all she's doing is flicking the eyelids of the doll, or all she, she's lining them up, or she's cataloging them in color of hair, or she's cataloging every time One Direction appeared on the TV and what they said. And so it's the nature of it is actually kind of overtaking the 
function of that interest you know the kind of the the, the core interest so I think a lot I don't know if Emma would agree but I think a lot of girls unfortunately get missed because they kind of do get ignored in that way because it's like it's fine she's playing with dolls in a room it's just it's fine she's good um so there's that expectation as well around what their interests are and how and what they should be doing or makeup is another huge with a lot of teenage girls I've worked with is an interest in makeup, which I think, again, a lot of parents go, that's normal, that's great, that's brilliant. But actually, I think if you dig deeper, there's there's something else going on underneath a kind of how she's putting on the makeup, how often and what kind of need that's meeting. That, that is so interesting. I don't, yeah, it's, it's like, well, that's why I do these <laughs> podcasts and enjoy talking to you because it gets me thinking, you never, it's true what you just said, because I don't, I don't actually feel being a male I don't actually feel there's a lot of pressure on boys uh, to do what some of the things that you've said, like if I'm playing with trains or playing with uh, action figures or I enjoy Lego, uh, things like that, you it, you know, on, unless it's like you said, the, the, with the way they're doing and the quality, the function, the quality is like, it's probably too much compared to other, other young men, but the, the pressure wouldn't be too much and you won't really say anything and the same with the uh, same with women as well if you're playing with dolls and things like that if it's like that social <laughs> acceptable behavior is, is set and 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 people miss it parents which there's no there's no uh book for parents is there <laughs> there's no you don't open a book and say how's the child playing with the dolls how's the child playing with the trains there's no there's no things to read so actually parents just assume that that's the that's the norm but as you said it, it, it's about the the, the the function and the quality of, of the place so that's that's really really interesting Emma growing up how do you feel that your own identity now you can reflect back how do you feel your own ident- identity was sort of not formed fully until mm. you maybe uh, received your diagnosis and then you knew you sort of understood why you might have been doing or be- behaving in a certain way or thinking in a certain way I I think when I was growing up, I did, I lived by my parents' expectations and I behaved in the way they wanted, the way that made their lives easier. I mean, my brothers were difficult. <laughs> so anything to make it a bit easier for them was a good thing. But it, yeah, I, I didn't really uh, develop my own personality and identity until I got to you. Till I moved away and went to university and then I had space and freedom and I, I wasn't the current girl anymore and yeah yeah, that, yeah that's interesting because I always wonder I'm very interested in that just in general people how people form their identities mm. because that's very very important in understanding yourself and when I spoke to Ben in, in the podcast and he and he, he taught me something I mean he, yeah because you know as I said I always learn something from the podcast where you were talking about difference between like self-esteem and self-worth as in mm-hmm. if you if you when you when you eventually find yourself through your teenage years you know you develop that sense of self-esteem or self-worth in different situations but actually what Ben was saying is that when he's when he's by himself that's when he experiences self-worth and actually if you feel good about yourself when you're by yourself you're probably going to feel good about yourself when you're with other people whereas self-esteem is it's like when the way you behave or with the way you feel with other people so if maybe your identity is not formed yourself um if you have difficulty if you don't understand yourself you can not understand how to maybe behave uh, when you've offered so actually maybe living by someone else's scripts like learning things presenting a different way just to be liked by other yeah. people really actually decreases your self-worth and your self-esteem mm-hmm. um i hope that makes sense <laughs> it made sense to me when you were talking about it talking about diagnosis do you both both questions to both of you is a later diagnosis worth it I've asked this to um, all, all the other guys um, um, I've, I've spoken to about autism on the podcast. Oh, to you, Emma, it was a later diagnosis worth it for you as a yes. woman? Yes, because I, I I got I got my diagnosis just before I went to university. Or first year, I can't remember. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, at the time I started university. And to have that time away from my family where I could grow up and know as well 
why I behaved the way I did, why I experienced the way I did. And the fact that I, I didn't conform with other people. That was brilliant. That was brilliant to know that I didn't have to go to parties. I didn't have to participate and socialize mm-hmm. because my mom said I should, <laughs> because it did have an effect on me. That wasn't great. Having too many people around. That was, that was so useful. And that, that just made me so happy. Mm-hmm. I mean, having, having an earlier diagnosis would have been fantastic before school. That would have been brilliant, but getting diagnosis at all, that was, yeah, that's the best. Oh, that's that's really good to hear. That's really really good to hear. When you talk, instead of I made me made me happy, I had a big smile on my face as well. So it's really nice to hear that. Well, in your experience, Hannah, when you have uh, done assessments for old girls and women, old age ranges, how how was their experiences been? It's. I mean, I love my work because I have the privilege to meet women from like toddlers to in their sixties and seventies, and that's I love my job so much. And as I said, I recently diagnosed a lady in her 60s. And sometimes when I do training, people go like, what's the point? Like, why, you know, lived a whole life. But the, like I think Emma said, is the understanding of herself, but also actually her family around her. Because you've got also got to understand that people come on this journey with you through your life and they're affected and the way we interact. And I think her, for her, when you say self-worth and self-esteem, I think that had been... In my experience, w- women or girls, the longer you go without a diagnosis, those things are affected negatively. Because as we talked about identity and we talked about how we see ourselves through other people's eyes, because as humans, that's what we do. That's how we're built. But I think a lot of the work I'm starting to do around self-worth and, self- and, and, and self-esteem with the girls that aren't diagnosed is has actually is becoming like a huge part of autism and girls because it then links to how we respond to friendships but romantic relationships as well and i think that is one of the biggest things that we're not talking about enough in the community because it it absolutely you know it's like you said it's hard enough to get through the day sometimes as anybody it's hard enough to do our job it's hard enough to wake up and have a relationship but if you have this added factor where you don't know why but you know that you feel differently you know that you are having to learn a lot more than other people learn the scripts as emma said learn the way to respond and deal with the out the kind of fallout from going to into a place where you're overloaded and tired and feel put upon but also don't understand naturally understand all the kind of interactions that you're having and you've had to learn them i think one of the things i'm seeing is the impact on the development of healthy relationships mm-hmm through life whether it's friendships or romantic Mm. or physical or whatever i think that's one of the impacts i've seen that can impact on um can have an effect on a diagnosis and a later diagnosis so a lot of the women i'm i I see the later the later in age they are unfortunately the more kind of vulnerable they may have become and the more damaging some of the relationships and interactions might have been in their life yeah, so I think that's that's why we need to be talking about it, and that's why we need to be, you know, you know, Emma is still kind of late. We need to be looking at as early a diagnosis as possible, but that means kind of relooking at the diagnostic criteria and understanding that a lot, you know, that I met and I started working with a girl on Monday who's 19. She doesn't meet the thresholds, but there's definitely yeah. areas that. She, she deserves to have support in mm. no that's very very that's yeah i think about relationships you know relationships across the board it's very important how we, relationships at work with romantic relationships a relationship with friends it's across the board and actually <laughs> one if having difficulty in one or two areas will have, can affect all of that um and that ultimately has an impact on your on your mental health um and just your ability to function um every single day so that's that's really really interesting thinking moving on the conversation a bit a little bit actually i will not talk about your work in the criminal justice system because i think that's i'm just biased because i work in in the criminal (laughs) justice system so so i'm biased i would love to know a lot more about that um we talk about trauma but firstly, I want to just hear about some of your experiences of working with uh, with 
autistic women or women who don't meet the threshold in the criminal justice system? What has been your experience so far? So actually a lot of the work I've been doing in the criminal justice system, uh, yeah, it's interesting actually a lot of, I kind of came into it through the male prisons. I actually did a research project eight years ago, screening male offenders for autism and ADHD. And then through that, we started doing this sort of psychoeducation workshops within the prisons with the peer mentors on the wings and stuff. And then that gradually led to the female prisons. But what we were finding is because if you think that we're not sort of picking up women in the community well enough, imagine in the criminal justice system, it's just like, nah, it's not happening. So the way we decided, I was very lucky a couple of years ago, I got involved with St. Giles Trust, who are a through the gates charity. So that means they meet people, they support people as they leave prison. And what we decided to do is not wait for women to be getting a diagnosis, but let's have a look at the women that potentially are scoring higher for autistic traits. And what we found really, really visibly is there was a link with these women and their self-esteem, self-worth and mental health, but also that actually there was an impact of the relationships they've been involved with that potentially could lead them into the criminal justice system. And so there's this cycle that we we very quickly saw. Now, this is not a kind of clear cut, uh, clear, clear cut black and white thing of like, they got in a bad relationship, therefore they kind of got into the criminal justice system. But there was definitely a link there that they obviously also, I think I've said to you before, is they were flying under the radar of the system. So a lot of them hadn't even been assessed or hadn't had any support going into prison. They come into prison, they're not gonna get assessed there because quite often they're presenting in this different way. So they're masking, they're camouflaging, or they're self-medicated. They have self-medicated mm. quite heavily with drugs and alcohol. And they also um, have quite prolific relationships and quite kind of strong relationships that dominate than when they come in. So they just don't get picked up or they get di- They come with a kind of armed with a band of diagnoses of personality disorders. And that's really, really common. Yeah. Yeah. So where do, you know, how do you start to unpick that? Yeah. And if you start trying to suggest autism, it doesn't always get met with the best response. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It's then it just comes on to that thing about labels and diagnosis, doesn't yeah. it? You, you get diagnosed with a, a borderline personality disorder, then you get diagnosed with autism. Then which which one is which one is which? <laughs> which one are you working with? Which one is more? Uh, it's just yeah, it's a it's a very very tricky area, isn't it? Because what happens, and I suppose, is that if you don't receive a diagnosis, you won't get the support. But then the diagnosis comes with its own stigma, stigmas attached to them anyway. So then you might not feel like you actually want the support or want the diagnosis. So it's very, very, it's very, it's very tricky. In terms of when you're talking about the relationships, is there a lot of, from both your experiences, Emma, actually, or people that you know, do you find that a lot of autistic women tend to experience more trauma, different types of trauma compared to maybe the general population? Emma, would have you, do you I... know, yeah. I I don't know that many other autistic women, but I think I think you go where people accept you, and yeah, if you if the person who it gives you enough sorry (laughs) give you the most affection (laughs) isn't a pleasant person, then it's just a person who's giving you affection, isn't it? You need Mm. human contact, friends, relationships. It just depends who you meet first. Mm, mm. I, I feel like I got lucky with my husband, but it could have easily have met someone unpleasant instead. Mm. Okay, okay. Um, what about you, Hannah? Um, I think what Emma's picked up on, which is absolutely um, vital to talk about, is that kind of we all want human contact, we all want affection. And I think one of the biggest myths I find still in autism is that you know, when I de- I deliver training to prison officers, to all kinds of community um, workers as well. And sometimes people say, yeah, but autistic people don't really want friends. They don't want to touch people. They don't want to be touched. And it's the biggest myth. Because actually, I'd say the majority of the autistic people and autistic women and girls I work with are actually, like all of us, desperate to be loved, desperate to be touched and be shown affection. 
the greatest difficulty, and I'm not saying like, you know, I've not navigated my relationships brilliantly through my life. Lots of people haven't. But I think at least I I am aware when somebody is potentially trying to hurt me or manipulating me in a negative way. I think, you know, like this girl I mentioned that I worked with last night, she said I was being manipulated and I, I wasn't aware of it. And she's a highly intelligent girl and highly intelligent. But it's that nuanced level in a relationship where you're very, you can be very quickly taken advantage of because of that desire to be wanted and liked and accepted. And if you think about the kind of things we talked about with identity before and with having to navigate your way through that social world and relationship world, and then the, the desire, the high desire to be wanted and liked and included and accepted, I think it, that makes a lot of the women and girls susceptible to being taken advantage of. Mm. I think then we, you know, we kind of start to look at, um, you know, with a lot of the younger girls I've worked with is is the being open, susceptible to grooming and mm. being taken into very um, vulnerable situations, which is definitely a link that we're now starting to see and definitely a conversation that we need to be having more about young people and young people particularly that are at high risk of being autistic, but might not score up enough for being autistic mm, mm, that's, that's, that's difficulty that's very true when you were talking i was thinking about how if someone just gets sort of trapped in this kind of maybe toxic relationship and they they have a very uh a dominant partner regardless of it being romantic or just a, a friendship level actually that emotional trauma emotional emotional abuse physical abuse that they might experience or that sort of sits with them and if you're already doing all the scripting and all the difficulties doing that you probably you, you probably think, think there's it's a normal thing to do uh, to get that affection that you're craving for because all of us humans you know <laughs> we need that kind of it's one of our core needs um so yeah that, i can imagine there might be a lot of that uh, women especially experience again going back to the the man's world the the perfectly designed male 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 world looks at actually maybe being dominant over another person and that's really sad (laughs) but it is is very true and we can't avoid that 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 is still prevalent in the world I think also sorry just to add I think and something that actually Emma and I have talked about and she's been incredibly helpful because part of the training I do is try to talk about the idea of consent and what consent is and how to understand it and Emma's given me some brilliant um, kind of examples of that uh, because she's been kind enough to talk to me about it and I think that is something that it seems you know when you go into school and you have the neurotypical mainstream schools And they do, you know, all schools are now really good on doing this, um, you know, education around healthy relationships and consent. They have to. But if you think that there's a lot of assumptions made when you're talking about consent, the idea of what, where the boundaries are, what is consent? What is it to give consent to someone to touch your body or not to, to look at you in a certain way or to say something a certain way? And there are things that sometimes I think we have been built that we understand is danger. Mm-hmm. And there's things, if you think that these, we talked about the social scripts before that women are learning, girls are learning. What about when it's as nuanced and, and as subtle as kind of someone flirting or flirting turn, turning to anger or jealousy? It can be just a, an eye movement. Mm-hmm. So it becomes really complicated. Mm-hmm. And it's, again, we're, we're assuming neurotypical things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's very true. Actually, I, I would love to if you told me more about what, the conversation that you had with Emma about um, consent. What Emma? What, what is well, consent? Is a massive word, isn't it? <laughs> it's a massive yeah. word. There's so many different aspects of it. But if you can give me uh, some of the like example of maybe where consent was um, was difficult for you at the time, or you had to like sort of, or you something that you learnt, but it actually wasn't the right way to go about it. Um, I well, for example, a issue I have is reading body language. I'm not good at reading body language. Um, but when you're out, when you're chatting to people, I, you can end up chatting to people and for them it's flirting, for you it's just chatting. And things can get awkward quickly. And I, I've been lucky. I've had friends who knew that 
I was autistic and could sort of step in and just say, hey, how are you doing? And diffuse the situation. Hmm. But not everyone has that. And it, there have been times when I haven't had friends there. It's, it's turned into a, a quite a nasty situation. And yeah, it, mm. it's reading situations, reading people is incredibly difficult. And um, you can't always realize exactly what you're getting into. No, that's that's very true and I suppose it's, it's even more doubly important now that you talked about that as you like you're an old, uh, you're you've grown up so talking about teenage girls who maybe start in secondary school that's that's very very <laughs> tricky I know it's schools have to terrifying. teach that yes yeah, it's, it's actually quite yeah. terrifying um, mm. and, and even just for neurotypical girls to <laughs> manage those situations compared to someone that might be experiencing difficulties in reading body language it must be doubly uh, difficult yeah, and I think parents, if you, if your daughters don't have a diagnosis, I think neurotypical parents kind of assume that you're learning these things, that you're learning all these cues, you're reading people and don't realise that actually you might have missed this entire aspect of safety education and they just let you go off in the world and it can lead to incredibly dangerous situations. Reminded me of another girl I worked with who said about, you know, the sex education at school where the nurse comes in and puts the condom on the banana. And she said to me, and she's, a, again, a very bright, very articulate girl. She said, I just didn't get the connection between a banana and um, <laughs> what they were trying to do. And it was like, she sat through the whole lesson, just conf- obsessed by what the banana was, what, what was going on. And all her friends instantly got like, this is the banana and the condom lesson. But she just missed that completely. Yeah. And it's like, because it, she took it literally. Yes. So you needed that explicit explanation of what was going on. And that's on a minor level, actually. So you think then when you start to talk about the new, you know, the kind of relationship interactions, like you said, when it becomes awkward and how to manage that and how to, mm-hmm. I think, Emma, you said to me, you did say to me, like, how to remove yourself from a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I still haven't mastered that. <laughs> <laughs> but now there's WhatsApp, I can message someone, which is a lot easier than it used to be. <laughs> But yeah. you, you still need to know that you've reached that point where you need to ask for help. No, that's 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 very true. And, and bringing it back to how uh, maybe w- women in the criminal justice system, with if a lot of people in the criminal justice system, something has gone wrong in some form of relationship somewhere <laughs> that has caused a, uh, something between people, and they've ended up in the criminal justice system. Actually, when they're in there, relationships have gone wrong in the past. How, how do then? How do we then help people who? maybe on the uh, autistic spectrum, develop those um, skills to be able to manage future relationships better. And I don't know, one of the questions I had for you guys was, is, have you, is there any specific support available for autistic women in, in the community? Or is there like uh, groups uh, for autistic women to share, to support themselves? Is there anything like that? I personally, I found mum's net helpful. For instance, when I had my daughter, I was worried about going on a post postnatal ward. I asked the people on Mumsnet, and they were incredibly helpful and kind. And there weren't just autistic women on there. There were nurses who had experience of autistic women as well, who came forward with suggestions, even such as asking, being allowed to ask to turn off beeping machines and turn down lights. And it was that. That's. That was the most help I think I've ever had, other than from someone like Hannah. Mm. But not everyone has is able to meet someone like Hannah. For other groups, when I got my diagnosis, I was offered help and various therapies and so on. And then I never heard from them again. Mm. So I, I just they just dropped off the radar. And yeah, I personally I don't think there's a lot of help out there. But. That, yeah. That's what when I was speaking to a couple of the guys in the previous episode about some of their experiences, and they said the same things. I know, like you said, mentioned it before, Emma. Some people might not want the support. Some people just want, yeah. just want to exactly. confirm that actually what they're going through is what they're going through. Um, yeah. But actually, if if you're gonna, which is very frustrating, if you're gonna offer support, we we should as a society be able to see it through. And actually, mm-hmm. if you offer support and don't ever get back to the person, that is very very frustrating. And so, yeah. was and then you, you you that person that you've just diagnosed can ask what's the point of me receiving that diagnosis I've just carried yeah. on living my life as, as, as it was especially if the clinical 
staff um, or the clinical person who was diagnosing you is actually the person that suggested that you actually go through this whole um, process, which is a, a long process, actually. We haven't really touched on that with you, Emma. I don't know how long your your diagnosis uh, took, actually. It, it was just over a year because um, I, I went through adult services. I just turned 18. And yeah, it, it was, but I put myself forward for it. Okay. That was, that it wasn't recognised by anyone else. I, I went to my mum first of all and said, look, I've read about this thing. I think I have it. And from there, it was three years until I actually went to a GP and said, I would like a diagnosis. Wow. That's it's, just, yeah. It's, when it's, I hear these things, process. when I hear it, I just, it's just, yeah, yeah. It's very frustrating, very frustrating. So waiting list and waiting for things to be done. It's very frustrating. I, I, I do understand the, the other side of it, but it's still it's still very frustrating for, for uh, you wait, having to wait. Uh, it's, it's, it's very frustrating. Um, Hannah, is there any other um, support uh, for autistic women that you could maybe direct clinicians to advise people to? Yeah, um, I would love to say there's all these amazing services available. We're, we're working on it, but actually there is scarily little. I have to say that, but there are people, there are, what there are is autistic women-led groups, which are brilliant. So they're online or they're in person, obviously pre-COVID they were in person, but there are a lot of online, there is actually a lot of online forums now, like Mumsnet is actually a good example, but there's similar things as well that are specifically for autistic girls women I think they're kind of the place that I direct a lot of girls that get in contact with the women to start with because then actually to be honest those people know the best yeah, of course. But the thing is when we don't know somebody the thing I found frustrating and that's another conversation about the NHS and then the pressure that they're under and I've worked in it I know the pressure but it is very frustrating when you give this diagnosis and you give this beautiful piece of paper saying you could go here you can get this you can get this and you they're not getting it. They're not going to get it for maybe two years, whether it's adaptive CBT, whether it's support. And it, it's heartbreaking, really, because you feel you you know that, that that once you get the diagnosis, you need that support immediately. Mm. So I can I, I kind of uh, kind of trying to develop sort of more what I call psychoeducation sessions. Like I, there's other people in my uh, field doing it where we're kind of one to one support or kind of just trying to have a chat. I always think someone needs a chat after they get diagnosed or they offer them a chat. Cause it's like, it, it's like you get told this thing and some people like Emma said, do go brilliant. I, I get myself now, I don't, I'm cool, I'm fine. But also for some families, particularly when, you know, it's the family, the parents and the young person, just need a minute, just need a minute to sort of recalibrate everything mm. and, I, and unfortunately there isn't the capacity of resources to offer that but I, I I've sometimes had a, a, a hard moment after I know in when I've worked in the NHS clinics is that that there's not a lot more you can do in that moment so it, yeah it, it it's difficult I say the online forums are the best at the moment there are people developing adapted counseling and CBT for autistic specifically for autistic people and there are some great there's some great research and also there's some autistic women that are leading research now which is brilliant yeah. absolutely fantastic yeah. i always i always believe in the power of like a lived experience or you know because at, at the end of the day I, we can come with all the knowledge we have from reading books and things like that but if you haven't lived that person's life or you haven't listened to that person and their wants and their needs and what is meaningful to them your help will only touch the surface basically because you'd be offering these things that actually might not be particularly relevant to people but actually when you speak to them and find out actually this person likes this but this person doesn't like that and how can I as a clinical member of staff a professional how can I make it uh, work for that person how can I best make it work for that person so I really believe in that can, can I add as well sometimes the diagnosis isn't what you expect um, for instance mine, my specific diagnosis was for PDD NOS not otherwise specified, anxiety disorder and mild OCD. I was going in there expecting to be diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, uh, but this was when it was still given as a diagnosis. And that getting a different diagnosis to what I expected completely floored me. It was, I, I don't remember the train journey home that day. It was just so not what I expected. And I, I came to terms with it afterwards and realized it's a great thing that I had the diagnosis. But on that specific day, that was just 
not it it was bizarre mm. and mm. yeah so it, it, even once with the time you get your diagnosis it you still having a chat afterward would be fantastic because mm. mine was sort of like okay this is your piece of paper this is your diagnosis bye now <laughs> and yeah it's incredibly frustrating and, I, and I, in the perfect world which is mm-hmm. in the perfect world it would be it would be lovely to have all the different maybe uh professionals let's just say professionals in in commas um that's commas like uh myself occupational therapist or um like a, a, a psychotherapist any any of the therapies actually to talk through people and some of the, those difficulties or some of the things that might occur with that diagnosis and 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 suggest how best you can like a bit like a case worker for that person and then you can get directed mm. to what, what you need um, assistance yeah. with because you won't need all of them which is uh, which is absolutely fine but if you do whichever one you need if it's available to point you in the right direction and if there isn't that it's, I just wonder how many people are first of all going under, under the radar that's 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 a, that's a miss for the world as well mm-hmm. and the people that actually get diagnosed and actually not receiving any any uh, support which means they're basically still under the radar <laughs> under the radar it's incredibly frustrating incredibly frustrating so uh, coming to the end of it i would love if you could give uh, some advice to clinical staff listening some women who may feel that they might have they might be autistic or maybe flying under the radar uh, what things we can we look out for or what things can we support people with like let's just say people that might may not want the diagnosis what kind of thing can we support them with emma who do you think what's with, your with work i think which would be the most help for most people i think just just being able to to get to the point where you can function doing a day's work and also have your own social life as well mm. and yeah i, I that'd be the most important I'm going to be biased and say occupational therapist would be the best at that. So, <laughs> or is it because I'm an occupational therapist? <laughs> because actually, the balance in your in your daily uh, routine is very very important. Actually, yeah. finding those points in the day where you do need to, um, wh- what is the most stressful point of your day for you, and what can you do to get yourself back to that level to be able to do another four or five hours of uh, a stint of work and your work to be able to support whatever work you're doing to be able to support. Yeah that as well yeah yeah for employers to support you is is hugely important because if they don't want to then you're kind of stuck yeah yeah, yeah you're, you're very stuck <laughs> uh, and hannah uh, what, what, what would you say what kind of advice would you give to uh, people uh, clinical staff working with autistic girls or women i think something i always try to say whether you know someone's autistic or whether someone's flagging up as autistic is I'm trying to sort of, in all the training I do, is say, think outside the box and think enlightened is the way I try and talk about it. And that actually just treat everybody, like there might be an awareness of sensory sensitivities, there might be awareness of communication, areas of difficulty. Just be sensitive, actually, in the work that you do from day to day so that you're not actually, unless it's not, okay, they've got a diagnosis, let's work differently with this person. Let's just go into every situation. You know, um, when I talk, when I do the training with probation officers or with uh, prison officers and such, I'm like, okay, you know, just the basics of prepare the person you're talking to, be clear about what you're about to do, be clear about the timings, be clear about what you expect from them, what you're going to do, ask them if they're comfortable. Obviously, a lot of resources, we only have, you know, I've worked in prisons, I've done assessments in prison cells. I know that we are (laughs) limited sometimes with what we can do. But just be aware and work in a sensitive way. And I think if you think somebody is, so I've kind of done, I've consulted on a few cases at a few women's prisons now where, you know, the, the, either the caseworkers or the probation officers or prison officers have called me up and said, I think this woman might be flagging up, but what, you know, what can we do? I encourage everyone to gather as much evidence as possible because you go armed with your evidence, with your actual kind of, evidence that something is, there's areas of difficulty for this person because they might not score up. But if you have enough to show that there's sensory difficulties, which we've not really touched upon today, which was my fault, but I think- um, We can touch upon it now, it's all right. We can touch upon it now. (laughs) Well, is there, is there, 
I know sensory sensory uh, difficulties is one of the it's one of the main things that uh, occupational therapists actually work uh, with as well. Um, are quite good at that, but yeah. actually not not every profession has an insight into it. Actually, well, how how do I must probably I'm trying to think of the question now. Um, Where the problem before? <laughs> no, how do you know? Yeah, no, how, but how do we uh, differentiate from how uh, maybe uh, women experience sen- certain uh, sensory difficulties completely different to maybe males? But I don't know if there will be a massive difference in it. But if there is, I, I think sense. I uh, Emma will be better yeah. equipped, perhaps. But like from my experience. I think sensory aspects actually are a huge factor for the females and particularly females in the criminal justice system is actually maybe where they're starting to flag up because they're having quite quite big reactions to lights, smells is a big, smells, textures of food. So uh, we, you know, we touched upon it before with eating things, but a, a kind of crossover that we're exploring is the crossover between eating disorders and autism and actually the different function of them and a lot of uh, some girls that I've worked with have said that the texture of certain food going down their throat means they don't want to eat it but it looks on the outside like that's a, a, a refusal to eat but actually it's the texture and the smell mm. so that's what needs a lot more exploration actually and I think sense I think I think both males and females experience sensory sensitivities and aversions and likes in autism but I think a lot of the girls I've worked with this that aspect is is fairly fairly prominent but actually doesn't you can't see it happening but what you will see is them having a very emotional and sometimes aggressive reaction to a light or a smell or a sound but it looks like it's just somebody being aggressive no, that's very very important because when we talk about sensory is we, we talk about the behaviors that that triggers that that reaction and some people sometimes we tend to just a lot of people look at the reaction <laughs> rather than what's the what, what preceded it in your experience Emma, in terms of talking about sensory uh, uh difficulties or versions have, have you had the experience of that definitely okay. <laughs> yeah and um, for me it's it's the noise of people okay um so working in a busy office isn't great uh i can drown it out with music but it kind of it gets that gets in and yeah but i i for my own reaction it's not aggressive or anything i i overload and kind of zone out yeah so i stop being able to reply to people it takes me it can take me a few minutes to reply to something someone said to me if i'm really bad oh that's yeah Uh, yeah it's a bit of a weird reaction. <laughs> well, no, it's not. But actually, if if it, let's just say you're an employer understands that, then mm-hmm. they, they can maybe organize the environment in a way that you, that you yeah. it makes you best function in your role. You know, because yeah, if, you, if you're very talented in your role, but actually maybe your function and it's not as as high as like mm. you know employers, we just need the most out of everyone <laughs> every single yeah. time. But yeah, if you're able to provide produce as much as you you possibly can. It, mm-hmm. it has a, it has an impact on the whole working environment. Actually, yeah. when you talk about the noise of people, mm-hmm. when you're traveling as well, did you? I'm guessing you, when you worked in London, I when you were traveling commuted. and yeah, commuted. How how difficult was that getting on? That was that was hell. <laughs> that was the worst part of my day. Just yeah, um, yeah. Particularly when you're going home, you have to end up in someone's armpit. <laughs> yeah, no, horrible. Yeah, and how did you sort of? manage yourself when you got to that stage of overload obviously in the train you don't particularly have to talk to someone but how did you manage yourself there. when you got they're still there <laughs> they're, still, they're there. still present they're still making noise they're still making smells they're <laughs> constantly there i can put on headphones and play very loud music and but that's you can't get away from it so when you get home do you just sort of have to take yourself like sit down relax chill out before you start doing anything else that you need to yeah, do yeah. at home yeah yeah, well, I mean, now I work from home, um, so no commute. But, um, but when I was, it was, I started off having just taken an hour by myself, not speaking to anyone, but then it got longer and longer and longer, and it got to the point where I wouldn't be speaking to my husband at all when I got home. Mm. It would just be, I needed that time to kind of get rid of the day. Oh, fantastic! Thanks for sharing that. Um, I think no thanks, thanks for bringing that up, actually, Hannah, because I <laughs> I completely forgot to add it to one of the things that I wanted to ask you. But it's very important to touch on it. And actually, in relation to women, if if it's, that's something that for all of us to be looking out for, 
um, how people re react to different things or how like MS described actually how, how I feel when people are like this we can make adjustments especially like, talking to occupational therapists now we yeah. can make adjustments to environments to to help someone function the best they can throughout their day and that's in all aspects that's from waking up actually going to sleep for size going to sleep waking up and then doing everything that you need to yeah. do in your day to because we talk about patients and how important they are so mm -hmm. if you're not able to do some things in your day it's obviously going to impact on your and, and, and how you experience your day is there anything else that any of you want to add before we round up I I just say that if you know anyone's listening that either works with somebody they think could be kind of fitting into some of the things that Emma and I have talked about or if you're someone yourself I would always encourage someone to try and pursue a diagnosis or get some kind of support if they can and the first step to doing that is gathering your information and going prepared because the first step is usually the GP and you need to kind of get through the GP gateway mm -hmm. yes. um, unless you've kind of got really great network around you who could help in another way but I I think I would always encourage if people feel I always hate the thought of anyone feeling like they're on their own in this world or that they're not kind of going to be sort supported and there is support out there in some way there is support out there that's something I feel strongly about yeah going with reference uh, breakdown like bullet points of where you think you meet each criteria is it's very formulaic but it really does help make it clear with a GP that's what I found very helpful oh, that's fantastic thank you so much I've learned so much again I'm just biased I love I love doing the podcast because I learn something new every single time um if I ever have to in any situation work with uh, with women again or um in, in an environment I feel that women might be experiencing uh, like especially some of the sensory um, aversions and difficulties that we just talked about but actually just in the whole scheme of things <laughs> how, how, how people might behave in and displaying um, certain traits and I've learned a lot from this conversation I hope everyone else that is listening has, has, has learned a lot so, so I just want to thank you Emma and, and Hannah for coming to share your experiences with me so I really really appreciate it Thank you Thank you well, you can tell from the tone of my voice during that conversation that I really, really enjoyed it. I learned a lot from both ladies. So thank you so much, Emma and Hannah. I hope you guys learned a lot too by listening to this. And until next time, stay safe.